we got a live one here, folks. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Today, my guest is Benton Crane, CEO of Harmon Brothers, a humorous marketing slash ad agency that's driven over $400 million in sales and reached billions of views with their work. Now, you may not know the company by name, but you've probably seen their work online, from iconic commercials for Kodiak Cakes to Squatty Potty, Poopery, Lumi Deodorant, The Ladder Luchador, and more. These guys have built a name for themselves catapulting startups into the stratosphere with funny, long-form digital advertisements. If you're a first-time listener, let me tell you that we showcase unusual success stories on this podcast, and Benton Crane and Harmon Brothers are exactly that. They are the marriage of cutting-edge digital techniques and hilarious comedy, so I'm thrilled to introduce Benton Crane. Benton Crane, uh, thank you for joining me. Been a longtime fan of Harmon Brothers and what you guys have been up to. Pleasure to be here. You know, you, your ads followed me around the internet for a while, and eventually I tracked you down and kind of got a sense of what you're all up to, and uh, I love it. So I really wanted to reach out and, you know, just kind of get a sense of the mes- method behind the madness. Well, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Very cool. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you do? What's the overview, the bird's eye view of your business? Sure. So I'm the CEO of Harmon Brothers. We're the ad agency that is famous for, let's see, Squatty Potty, Poopery, Chatbooks, Fiberfix, ClickFunnels, Lumi Deodorant, and many, many others. Um, We we are oftentimes referred to as... um, you know, the, the guys who do all those viral videos, um, we, well, we appreciate the sentiment. Most of them are not viral, but most of them are very, very successful. Yeah. Um, and, and we think that success actually comes um, in a much more sustainable way when you're not relying on virality. Uh, but we'll take it if people want to think of us that way. Cool. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're really pushing the boundaries in terms of what's possible. Um, I personally love that you have built a serious business based on humor. I think that's something you don't see very often. So I have a lot of questions for you. Lots of questions. Because, you know, I my roots are in, in comedy as well. I was in an improv group for, you know, six years in a row. I was an actor as a kid. and But now I do digital marketing myself. So uh-huh. it's just nice to see people out there who are, you know, getting serious business clients, but are also keeping the fun factor and, you know, crushing it with that combo. So it just instantly appealed to me what you guys were doing. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, I think humor is probably the most shareable thing that we that we have on the internet. You know, you can think about all the things that get shared and sometimes they're sentimental, sometimes they're controversial, sometimes they're fear-based. You know, you can get some sharing coming out of lots of different types of content. But I think all of those would kind of play second fiddle to humor. Like humor is just the most shareable thing because it puts a smile on people's face. Yeah. And you know, when you're when you're scrolling through your feed and you have an opportunity to make somebody else smile, then you're not going to hesitate to share that. Whereas, you know, some of those other types of content, you're going to think twice before you're like, do I want to be that guy who <laughs> <laughs> right. posts that, you know? So for you personally, how did you get involved? Like, how did Harmon Brothers come to be? I noticed based on your last name that you are not, I'm assuming, a Harmon brother. <laughs> your last name is Crane. So what are the origins here? Yeah, great great question. So um, there are actually six Harmon Brothers. Oh, wow. Um, they, they come from a very large family, uh, nine kids. Uh, six of them are brothers. Um, uh, originally, three of them 
uh, were uh, together at a company called Aura Brush, and they together kind of pioneered YouTube marketing. Uh, Aura Brush was like this tongue cleaner that you scrape your tongue with, and then it gets rid of bad breath. And they um, they were in the right place at the right time when Google had just purchased YouTube. Um, many people will probably remember at the time they paid, I think it was $1.6 billion for YouTube and everyone was too scratching much. their head like, what is Not happening? You know, yeah. you know, are they out of their minds? Uh, but of course, they had this vision for turning it into an advertising platform. And, and so right as they were looking to turn that into an advertising platform, um, Jeffrey Harmon made this two and a half minute long ad for Aura Brush, which at the time was like, an unheard of length for an ad. Like you either had your typical 30 second, 60 second TV spots, or you had your infomercial spots, you know, which were mm-hmm. like 15, 20, 30 minutes, but two and a half minutes, that was just like this odd duck length. And so he, he makes this video and then he starts showing it to people and everyone, myself included, was like, no, nope, not going to work. You got to figure out how to make it shorter. You got to make it 30 seconds. And he, he was like, no, I need two and a half minutes to properly communicate what needs to be communicated and to properly sell this product. And so he actually reached out to YouTube and he goes, can you guys give me a skip button so that the people who want to watch this ad can watch it. The people who don't want to watch it can skip over it. And this is pre-skip button? Yeah, this is pre-skip button. Get out of here. And YouTube is like, you know, at that point, they're still acting like a startup. You know, this is brand new. They're just trying yeah. to launch an ad platform. And they're like, sure, we'll try it. Let's let's give it a whirl. And so they built the skip button. And, uh, you know, I don't think YouTube or Jeff had any idea at that point in time, like how impactful that would be to the, to the whole industry. But now looking back over a decade later, I'm pretty convinced that that like one tiny little innovation probably did more to change the advertising industry than almost any anything else that I can think of. And it's because it simply shifted the power from the advertisers who used to have a captive audience. And so they're just like, hey, we can make whatever yep. we want. We can, you know, force feed it to you. You're a captive audience. Deal with right. it. Right. And that's why we hated commercial breaks so much. Yeah. You know, they're, they were terrible experiences. And that one little innovation of building a skip button shifted the power over to the viewer and made it so that the viewer can decide what is worth their time and what is not. And so then all of a sudden, the onus fell on top of us as advertisers to actually make stuff that people want to watch, something that people will voluntarily give their time to, something that people want to share and and something that they'll talk about that, that they engage with. And, and so that was the beginning of, um, you know, what a few years later became Harmon Brothers. So the three brothers left Aura Brush. Aura Brush ended up getting acquired by Dentec. And when they left Aura Brush, um, Poopery had been watching from afar what they were doing at, at Aura Brush. And so they, they came, uh, they came according, if you will. And, um, and, uh, so the brothers, the three brothers, Daniel, Neil, and Jeff signed up to do a campaign for Poopery and they needed a data analytics guy. And that's where I came into the picture. I had been in Washington, DC, working in the intelligence community, 
Um, and prior to that, I had been a statistician at the Census Bureau. And so wow. I was a bit of a I was a bit of a spreadsheet, you know, okay. geek, if you will. Yeah. And and they needed that skill set because they had learned at Orabrush that when you can combine the art with the math, um, uh, it, it creates this powerful you know combination where you come up with a creative idea. And then you can test it and look at the data and then let that inform your next idea. And it creates this cycle where you can rinse and repeat over and over and over again. And so um, I joined up with with the three brothers. That's when we started Harmon Brothers. We did the Poopery campaign. Um, It was successful beyond our wildest dreams. Um, And that that was the that was the beginning. Um, After that, we uh, we co-founded. Um, a video streaming platform called VidAngel, um, on which Neil and Jeff ended up uh, transitioning and staying full-time on VidAngel. And Daniel and I um, uh, stayed full-time focused on building Harmon Brothers, the agency. Uh, we actually thought we were hedging our bets. We're like, oh, one of these two is going to fail. Um, but fortunately, neither one has failed. Uh, both awesome. are uh, Both are going strong today. So Neil and Jeff are over there. Daniel and I are here running the running the ad agency. Um, he is our chief creative officer. So he is um, either the creative genius uh, behind the work you see, or he has developed the team, um, the, you know, the the teams that become the creative genius on the, uh, on the various ads you see. Um, and then I, um, I evolved into the CEO role. And here we are today, I guess it's been coming up on eight years later. It's been a wild, wild journey. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. I was going to ask, you already answered my question of if you had a yin yang thing going on. So it's good. So you're the spreadsheet guy. (laughs) He's the creative guy. And together you have both aspects of what you need to sell stuff online. Yeah. So um, it's interesting because we had, um, we've had several, uh, you know, venture capital firms kind of court us because they see all these companies who, we do campaigns for and then they blow up and, you know, 10 X their sales and everything. And so of course, you know, the VCs are like, we want in on that. Yeah. And, and so uh, we've had several of them kind of court us. And one of them did an analysis of our whole entire portfolio. And they came to the conclusion that, um, let me see if I can remember the numbers, right. Uh, if, if my memory serves me correctly, it was 83% of um, our clients um, who you know have done the the Harmon Brothers Hero campaign? They at least double their revenue, um, and then forty percent at least ten x their revenue. Wow. Um, and and so in the venture capital world, those ten xers they call that uh, those are what they call their home runs, and they have this metric that they measure. They call it home runs per at bat, um, okay. and and so um, for our clients, the home runs per at bat is about. Um, 40%. And um, uh, I guess the most successful VC firms uh, are really happy when they can get a home runs per at bat of like 20% or 25%. So it's kind of, it's kind of off the charts and really unique. And so Mm. people from the outside who are seeing that track record, and they're seeing that, um, I guess, the repeated success over and over and over again with all these different companies, um, they kind of assume like, you know, do these guys have the golden touch? Is there some sort of magic there? But when you actually peel back the curtain, it's so much more simple than what 
than what people realize. And it's just that rinse and repeat of right. combining the worlds of art and math where you're, you know, you have these ideas and then you test them and then you tweak your idea and then you test and tweak and test and tweak and test over and over and over again. Um, and, and so once people kind of wrap their heads around that methodology, then all of a sudden they start to wrap their heads around, oh, I see how this can be repeatable. It can be semi-predictable. Um, you know, when you, when you have all the right elements, a great product, great message, you know, a, a, a passionate fan base, you put all of those things together and then you test your way into those messages and into those ad campaigns. Uh, you, you can make the, you can make the success. Um, you know, it's, it's never a guarantee, but you can definitely maximize your, yeah. uh, your, your chances on those. Do you feel that, um, you know, obviously now you're getting more notoriety, you're becoming somewhat famous in the space. I feel just as a, as a third party observer, um, I have seen people who are clearly trying to copy your formula. I've seen ads from other people. Um, do you feel that, that there's risk of that or that this, this formula of these long form ads is going to get diluted over time or where do you see it going? Is it sustainable for another 10 years? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so one, you're right. Like, and, and we are absolutely flattered that, um, it, you know, that our, our methods are, are proving to be successful enough that, that, you know, people are, are taking those and copying them and, and, um, many of which are, are finding some, um, some really good success with it as well. Um, so let me, let me answer your question in two different ways. Um, and it'll kind of be two sides of the same coin. Uh, the first response I have is that while our methodologies are relatively straightforward and we're very open with them, like nothing's secret sauce or anything, like we share it all openly. We, we openly teach how to do what we do, but it turns out the execution of it is much harder than, than, than what people realize. And it takes a much, uh, it takes a, a very large dedication to the grind, if you will. Yeah. So typically when we do a hero campaign, it's six months from start to finish. And, and from the outside in, that just sounds like, man, six months to develop one campaign. That seems insanely long. Mm -hmm. But when you peel back the curtain and you see just how much iteration is going on behind the scenes, and at every step of the process, that type of iteration is going on. So in the beginning, when you're just coming up with a concept, you're iterating, you're testing, iterate, test, iterate, test. Then you write a script, iterate, test, iterate, test. Then you do storyboards, iterate, test, iterate, test. Then you do an animatic, which is storyboards combined with voiceover. Once again, iterate, test, iterate, test. Then you finally film. And even when you film you're filming several variations. You want to make sure you have several intros, you have several calls to action, several offers, you know, because these are all levers that, that you're going to be able to test through. And, and then you get into the post-production process where you're, you're in the edit. Um, and once again, iterate, test, iterate, test. Then you get into the motion graphics, iterate, test, iterate, test, and so on and so forth, all the way to where you launch it six months later and people are assuming, oh, cool, we're done. Yeah. But you're not. You're still mm. iterate, test, iterate, test, tweak, tweak, tweak. Mm. And, and, and so the dedication to that grind, you know, from, 
from the beginning and, and the grind really doesn't stop. Like you just keep iterating and testing. That's pretty hard to pull off. And so that's why you see kind of out in the marketplace, even though there are a lot of copycats out there, I'm not aware of any that are getting the same hit rate, you know, that, mm. that 40%, you know, home run per at bat. Um, right. I'm not aware of anyone else who is even, you know, coming close to approximate that. And, yep. and two reasons, one, because that grind is really hard. And two, it's oftentimes hard to get a client who's willing to commit to that grind and who's also willing to, you know, bring enough budget to the table to get through that grind. Right. Um, and, and so on that hand, it makes what we're doing pretty hard to, to replicate. So that's one side of the coin. You know, the, the answer is it's hard, but it's totally doable. The other side of the coin is that um, while, while the marketplace evolves and there's always going to be different styles of ads and different ad formats that kind of come into Vogue and out of Vogue, um, and, and we, along with everyone else, are evolving right along with that. But the key principles that are underlying what we're doing they're probably over a hundred years old. You know, the, the, these are principles that, um, you know, as a little kid, I, I started baking bread and then selling it to my neighbors. And as I'm knocking on my neighbor's door, I'm using the exact same principles that, that we use now. I have to grab your attention. Um, I've got to uh, present a problem and a solution. I've got to build credibility. I have to overcome concerns. Um, I have to call you to action, make an invitation. These are all like tried and true principles that, you know, they're, they're never going away. There's always going to be a place for them. And so the application of kind of how all those principles get applied, yeah, that's, that's always evolving, always tweaking. But I don't see, um, you, you know, those core key elements of a, of a proper cell uh, I, I don't see those ever going out of style. Mm. Yep, for sure. And when people copy your your video, they're looking at essentially the tip of the iceberg and there's this mountain of work underneath that got to that finished product that you can't copy just looking at the finished product. That's kind of what I'm assuming you're saying, right? Exactly. So w when it comes to the early stages of iteration, if you've got something as early as a script, um, mm -hmm. who are you testing that on? Do you have focus groups? I mean, who who is the, you're not obviously putting an ad out with a script and seeing how people react to it on Facebook. Yeah, so <clears throat> all of my data friends back in Washington, D.C., you know, they'll cringe when I say this. Um, but at that stage of the process, like we're not being all scientific about mm -hmm. the testing process. You know, we're not measuring confidence intervals and, <laughs> and, and statistical significance and, and those sort of things. Um, it's much more, um, we just wrote a script. Let's go read it to a dozen people. And by the way, as we read it to a dozen people, we're going to film their faces because uh -huh. we want to go back and analyze actual in the moment knee jerk reactions, uh, as they're experiencing it for the first time. Are the jokes landing? Are there points where they're confused? Are there points where they're starting to, you know, look down at their watch because they're checking out? We need to uncover all of these, these things so that we can know where the strengths of the script are and where the weaknesses of the script are. And so that way we can identify the areas that we need to go workshop and fix so that by the time you end up with a video that sometimes these videos can be three, four, five minutes long. We've had one go as long as 11 minutes 
And the key when you start getting into this long form content is you have to make it so engaging and you have to have so much rhythm to it that people forget about time. Uh, Have you ever noticed how like sometimes when you're watching a commercial, I know that like pharmaceutical commercials are, are infamous for this where it'll be like a 90 second, um, commercial because they have to read like all this fine print uh, or whatever and so it just starts to feel like it drags and drags and you're just sitting there like waiting for your commercial break to end and you're like this is the longest thing ever (laughs) um and then you contrast that to like a four or five minute ad um, that has great rhythm great comedic timing all of those things and if the time flies by like it goes by in an instant you don't even think about the time and to get to that level of uh, rhythm, if you will, mm-hmm. to where people mm-hmm. forget about time, it takes a lot of work to to identify, you know, where all the weak spots in the in the script or in the edit or whatever it is that you're working on. That makes so much sense. Um, and you know, to your earlier point, you mentioned obviously this is a huge buy-in from any potential client. So I think you know, you're eight years in, you have what seems to be an unstoppable train, which is just awesome. Um, How do, in a world where so many people are hesitant about digital anything or their budgets are shrinking or they think, why would I spend any money on a 30-second, you know, a Facebook ad? um, How do you get larger clients just starting out? Like, how, how do you get to that? How did you get to that next level where people would say like, okay, here is enough money to do all of the things that you do. Because mm-hmm. I think I, I I saw in one of your things, you're like, oh, we, we get uh, joke writers, former UCB people here in my neighborhood, you know, like, or improv comedians, you go to a retreat or you're writing a script, all these things and the time involved. And then when you actually go to the production, you have these massive, like actual scale production with good cameras, good lenses, all of the people yep. needed. I mean, this, this even a day of shooting like that is big budget. So yep. How do you get the credibility to go to that level? Yeah, great, great question. Um, Let me zoom out for a second before I answer your question directly. Um, When you look at the history of advertising and when you look at kind of the industry as a whole, you'll find the industry is kind of broken into two camps. Um, On one side of the industry, you have kind of the whole direct response, performance marketing. It's where your infomercial people live. It's where your pay-per-click people live. It, uh, you know, it's the, it's the click now while supplies last or hurry you know, to get this offer. It's, it's that world, mm-hmm. right? And then on the other side of the industry, you have the traditional branding world. And this is where the Apples and the Nikes and the Coca-Colas of the world, it's the things that you would expect to see in the Super Bowl ads. Right. Yeah. It's much less in your face about hurry while supplies last, you know, um, you know, click now and then you'll get this special offer. It's it doesn't go there. Instead, it's all focused on um, the emotion, making it memorable, making it shareable, um, making a, making your brand um, associated with, you know, positive feelings and positive memories. It, it's it, it's kind of those those two worlds. And it's so fascinating that historically, those two worlds have just hated each other, like vehemently. Um, You'll go talk to somebody in the direct response world, and they will be so critical of branding where they're just like, that's not measurable. Like, you never know if you're going to get an ROI on it. It's just all fluff. They love to call it vanity metrics, right? It's like, 
you know, it's just stroking people's ego, all that sort of stuff. Then you go over to the traditional branding world and they're equally um, as disgusted, you know, by by the direct response world. These guys will watch an infomercial and then feel like they need to go take a shower, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, gross. It's, you know, it's pushy. It's high pressure. Um, You know, why would you ever do that to your brand? It's it's that type of thing. And so these worlds have hated each other so much that they've rarely intermingled. Mm-hmm. And and then we came along and we're like, well, there's actually pros and cons of of both sides. Why don't we take the good from each? And so, you know, we pull out the elements from traditional branding of things like overcoming concerns and, you know, call to action and all those things, trackability, measurability. And then you combine it with, you know, things that make it memorable and shareable, humor, brand character, you know, brand universe, all of these things. Um, that that make it so engaging and so fun, and 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 in our beginning years, we kind of lived like right smack dab in between those those two worlds. We were kind of like this bridge between them, and through doing that, over time, we've learned that there's actually kind of an infinite spectrum between direct response and traditional branding, and it actually coincides perfectly with the journey that any startup has to travel. So if you think about it, when, you know, when you're a brand new startup, you can't afford Super Bowl ads. You 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 can't, you can't afford, um, uh, you know, to be uh, putting out high budget, humorous content, all that stuff. No, you need sales. You got to keep lights on. You got to keep payroll. And so to get that, you have to just go straight out there and sell, you know, Mm -hmm. here's the problem I solve. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's the solution. Here's why you should believe in it. Um, you know, let me uh, overcome your concerns and boom, uh, you know, here's my offer. And that's what you have to do. And it's totally appropriate as a, as a startup to do that. But then you have to start thinking about, okay, the sales are coming in. Now I need to start thinking about, okay, how do I build a brand that is going to stand the test of time? Otherwise, you risk becoming like, um, I love to use the example of Snuggie, um, which was like famous infomercial in the 2000s. Was that, that like, a, like a robe type thing? Or yeah, it was, was like, like a it was square like a robe. Sleeves. Oh, yeah, right. So um, like goofy infomercial, but wildly successful. Uh, sure. Depending on the source you read, they sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 to $500 million worth of Snuggies. Wow. And I look at that and I'm like, that is wildly successful. But fast forward today, where are they? You know, mm-hmm. nobody has heard of Snuggie for years. The mm-hmm. up and coming generation has no idea what it is. And, and I look at that and I'm like, they sold 300 to $500 million worth of Snuggies and they never bothered to build a brand. And because they didn't build a brand, it's not memorable. Um, they didn't build a portfolio of products that can live under that brand. Like if they had done that, then today we would probably all have a dozen different Snuggie products in our house. And it would be this household name that everyone knows and trusts and, 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 but it's not, it's faded into obscurity. And that's why it's so important for when a startup starts to get success and those sales are coming in, it's really tempting to be like, Ooh, I've made it. You know, like, yeah. oh, I can spend a dollar on yeah. ads and get back $2 in revenue. We're there. And, and many entrepreneurs fall into that trap 
but then just like Snuggie, they have like this two, three, four year, you know, run of success. And then all of a sudden something shifts in the marketplace or whatever happens. And that gets pulled out from underneath them and they fade into obscurity because they didn't bother to, um, to build a brand. And, um, and so back to your original question, you know, how do you get to the point where, you know, you can get companies with big budgets who, who trust this process? And the answer is you have to think about that process to give the right thing to the right client at the right time. Meaning a startup is not going to sign up for a big half million dollar, big budget um, campaign and nor should they. They need mm. to work their way up to that mm. and get to the point where they're thinking about, okay, how do we make our brand memorable? How do we make it sticky? How do we make it stand the test of time? And then on the flip side, you have these brands who they want to act like big brands. They want to act like the Nikes and Coca-Colas and Apples. But there's even though they're successful, they're still like a tiny fraction of the size of an Apple or a or, or a or a Nike. And so they actually have to think, okay, we've got to step back away from traditional branding a little bit and get a little more back toward uh, d- direct sales. So um, one example, uh, we just released an ad campaign for Third Love. Mm-hmm. Um, Third Love is a Silicon Valley company that is disrupting um, the whole bra industry. Okay. So, so historically, Victoria's Secret has been like the big player sure. in the in the bra industry. And over the years, Victoria's Secret's whole like play in the marketplace has been to use sex um, to sell uh, to sell bras. So it's kind of it's actually kind of ironic and backwards that they're selling to women but they're using messaging that's directed toward men or men. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so third love came along and said, no, that's backwards. Um, it's, it's a terrible experience. They're not speaking to women. And so they built this bra company that's for women by women. And it solved all of those, um, all of those problems where it has inclusive messaging, inclusive models, inclusive sizing. Um, and, and they're speaking directly to women. They're not using sex to sell, you know, they're, and, and anyways, um, they came in and they were so disruptive that they started taking major market share away from, uh, from Victoria's Secret and getting really, really successful. And, and so they were kind of going down that route of, you know, we're acting like a big brand. We're doing traditional branding. The, it's the look, the feel, the emotion, all of those things. And they had a lot of success with it. Uh, but they reached a point where they realized that um, they needed to combine that branding with a little more direct sales. And so they came to us. And so we helped them kind of um, uh, bridge that gap a little bit. And so the campaign that we launched for them, you know, it has humor, it has branding, it has all of those amazing sticky elements to it. But carefully woven in there is the traditional sales pitch, the the Mm. problem, the solution, the credibility, overcome concerns, all of that. But it's very subtle and it's woven in there in a way that doesn't make, you know, traditional brand people feel like they need to take a shower. Right. Um, so that that's kind of like the, you know, that's the that's the broad spectrum. Okay. So how many employees do you have now in the company? Oh, let's see. I think we're in the low 40s, if I'm okay. not mistaken. So getting up there. Um, 
All right. So how many, so what is the uh, two other questions then? What's the typical engagement structure? You mentioned the hero campaign. Um, and how many of these can you be doing simultaneously? Is it like we can only focus on one at a time and that's going to be a six month process. We do two per year or what's the bandwidth? Yeah, great, great question. So, um, we kind of have a range of offerings that start at what we call um, labs, which is short for learning ad blitz, which are like okay. really low budget, uh, fast turnaround ads that are designed for testing. Like get these ads out into the marketplace so that we can test through messaging and find out you know, what message resonates, what target audience does it resonate with. And those are, you know, those are cheap, fast, low budget. We can do a lot of those. And then you get into what we call sprint campaigns and then up into um, kind of full on like hero campaigns and then even into what we call like a portfolio campaign that includes like a whole bunch of assets um, that, you know, in a portfolio, you want to give um, long assets, short assets, assets for all different platforms, all different, you know, TV, radio, um, you know, banner ads, print ads, you just want the whole kind of the, the, the whole approach. And so to answer your question, um, the, obviously the further up that spectrum we go, the bigger the projects get and the fewer of them we can handle at a time. And so there's always mm. kind of this blend of like, we'll have two or three big projects all kind of happening simultaneously. And then we'll have, you know, call it, you know, half a dozen, maybe eight or 10 of the small projects, uh, you know, kind of running side by side with those. And we've developed out a structure. We, we kind of ripped this off from Pixar nice. where, where we use uh, what, what we call our brain trust, which is a term that we stole from the book Creativity Inc. Um, yeah, I remember that. That's a great book. Yeah. So the, the way that it works is we've developed several different creative directors. And so each project gets its own creative director. And that creative director is, you know, they are in charge of all the critical creative decisions for that project. But the creative director gets to bring it back to the brain trust, which is where all of the creative directors come together to form the brain trust. And so every single project is actually getting the brains of, you know, all of our creative directors Everybody. who are picking holes and saying, Okay, something's not clear here. I'm not understanding this, or um, you know, what could you do here to fix the timing on on you know on this or whatever it is. Yeah. And and so that makes it so that um, even though we have I don't know what we're up to seven or eight different creative directors who are simultaneously running all these different projects, um, you don't end up with this situation where it's like, oh man, this project would have been so much better if this other creative director had taken it. Um, we actually get a really high level of quality out of all of our creative directors because they all have the brain trust to support them and to make sure that each, you know, each piece of content gets its best shot. That is very cool. I love that. And Pixar, I mean, they're, they're legends, obviously. That's a great know, model right? to go on. I mean, that yep. was a great book. I mean, they're, nothing too good can be said about Pixar. They're awesome. Um, so go back to eight years. You're just, okay. You, one of the Harmon brothers, you're starting this thing. How many people did you have as employees at that time? Just the two of you, or did you have a team? Well, it was there was four of us originally. Oh, oh okay, so, okay. So three brothers and myself. Okay, yes. Um, and that's what that's what we launched the 
the poopery campaign with. And, and obviously like, you know, even when you're a tiny team like that, when you go on set, you're going to bring in a bunch of contractors so that you have, you know, camera operators and, you know, gaffers and all the different people who you need for a crew. But yeah, it started out as just four of us, uh, you know, key team members. And then over time we just kept replacing ourselves you know, in you know how it is in startup world, you wear a million different hats. Yeah, absolutely. And and over time, you just start to identify, you know, where your contribution can make the most impact, and you shift your focus there, and then you let somebody else step in and wear, you know, wear the hat that you were wearing. And in almost every case, we hire people who wear the hat better than right. <laughs> than, than we the wore Ford it. model. Yeah, You're looking for those smarter people. Um, that's I mean, yeah, that's that's super cool. I think it, it might have been one of your emails. I'm on your mailing list, but one of your emails, I think you said something about like you you try to focus on only the most important things in your core strength. You delegate everything else. It was you made a message somewhere about delegating a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your approach to to expanding into delegating? Who did you bring on first, and how did you start taking more of a managerial role and less of a in the weeds role? Oh, boy, my, my memory is going to be a little bit foggy, but I think, I think the first area where I replaced myself was um, in legal. Because in the beginning, um, <laughs> yeah. we, we wrote, uh, I think, our first couple of contracts, or at least maybe our first one contract. We just wrote it ourselves. It was just like uh, one pager, like, we agree to do this. You agree to pay us this. Cool. Thumbs mm-hmm. up. Shake hands. Let's go. Um, and, and so naturally, you know, I, I replaced myself there so that we could get, you know, proper contracts in place. Um, and then I think I replaced myself next on the accounting side of things because, you know, I was doing all the bookkeeping and all of that mm. stuff. And it, you know, it, it quickly turned into a train wreck because, um, it, you know, it takes a high level of attention to detail for that type of stuff. And for me, it was like just a side, you know, something that had to be done. And so I'd give it a little bit of time, you know, yep. when it, when I had to. Um, then after that, um, I think I, I started replacing myself in ad buying um, because that's a very tedious, uh, you know, it's like always on, you're always checking the accounts. Um, it just takes a ton of focus. A, a ton of attention to detail, so I replaced myself there. Okay. Um, and well, I don't, I don't remember exactly kind of how the how the sequence went, but I just kept replacing myself over and over and over again, and kept encouraging the team members who we brought in to do the same thing to you know uh, to build your you know build your sphere and then replace yourself so that you can get really focused on on the key areas. And so over time, you know, I've narrowed my my role down to three things. Um, and, and I, I try to only focus on those three things. And if anything falls outside of those three things, then I'm like, okay, I should be delegating this. Who should I delegate it to? So my three things are one, I have to shape the future of the business. And so, you know, I'm constantly thinking about what is next? How do we need to position ourselves? What are the market opportunities that we can get out in front of? What are the market opportunities that we can create? Constantly thinking about that. Two, is how do I um, evangelize, um, you know, the our why, you know, our mission, both externally and internally, so that um, you know we're establishing our brand in the marketplace, and so that we're 
really internalizing and living our brand inside the company. Um, so that's my second thing. And then the third thing is to just uh, tear down roadblocks for the team in any way that um, in any way that I can, so that um, it, I kind of think of myself as a as a bulldozer sometimes, where I'm just like, okay, is something in the way? of the team moving forward and can yeah. I knock that yep. can I knock that barrier down somehow That's great. Have there been any notable challenges? Has it been just a series of green lights or have there been any <laughs> notable challenges? Like what are some struggles? I mean Oh boy. There there are always <laughs> always always really hard struggles. Like um every successful entrepreneur has had to go through the grind and had to eat dirt and had to suffer. Um, you know, our our podcast is called the Poop to Gold Podcast, and that's uh, yes, the whole I, am, I know it well. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know, what is the poop moment that you have to go through <laughs> to to end up in the right. in the gold? The shit and we sandwich. No ex- it's been referred to. Yeah. Yep. We are no exception to that. Like it yeah. is a. It, it's been a grind. It's been a hustle the the whole entire way. People don't. A lot of people don't know this, but. Um, when we did Poopery originally, and then we shifted gears and we co-founded VidAngel, in that first year, it was really, really hard sledding. And we got to a point where we were running out of cash. And that was when Daniel and I decided, okay, we got to go, you know, we got to go do some side projects to kind of keep food on the table, keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. One of those side projects ended up being Squatty Potty, which kind of like, you, wow. you know, that, that that created a takeoff moment for us. Yeah. But leading up to Squatty Potty, um, I had to go pour concrete on a construction crew. Okay. Um, I drove Uber. Um, I was yep. one of the first three Uber drivers in Provo, Utah. Get out of here. Um, That's and, hilarious. And like Daniel was, you know, he was out like helping people design their little websites and and, uh, you know, doing like really low end graphic design work, uh, just, you know, we were like all other entrepreneurs who are just like, we just have to figure out a way to survive and to hustle and, um, and, and to keep the lights on. And, um, yeah. But by any means necessary, just like everybody else. That's right. Uh, Do you, uh, you know, advice for somebody who looks at what you guys are doing and they want, maybe want to follow in your footsteps. Somebody who maybe they're a solopreneur, maybe they have a small team and they're trying to go to the next level. What what general advice would you have? Let's see. Um, general advice. Uh, I would say, I think you'll appreciate this because you have a background in comedy. Um, so many people look at what we do and, and they're like, Oh, cool. I want to be funny too. Yeah. Um, but what they don't understand is that like the super talented comics usually have a decade of work and grind and hustle into becoming a, a talented comment comic. And it doesn't matter if it's stand up or or improv or or whatever it is. You just have to put in the reps. And there are there are a lot of people out there who just feel called, you know, to that road, and and they're out there going on that journey and they're hustling and they're going to open mic nights and and all of those things to kind of develop those reps. 
And so I would say to the marketers and to the entrepreneurs who look at our work and think, oh, I need to incorporate humor into, mm. into my advertising. I would say, go find the people who are, who have dedicated their lives to becoming funny and, and who are putting in the reps and all the hard work and collaborate with them. Uh, because that collaboration between, you know, dedicated comedians combined with entrepreneurs and marketers, it's a really, really powerful team that ends up in way better results than if you tried, you know, as a marketer or as a comedian or sorry, as a marketer, or as an yeah. entrepreneur, it's like, I'm going to be funny today. Right. <laughs> you know, it's um, so it, it, oh. it's kind of it, it goes back to that delegation thing. You know, it's it's recognizing where am I strong? Mm. And and how can I surround myself with people who are strong where where I'm not? And uh, and working with real comedians is, is a great way to kind of practice that. You know this this is um you know this has been so great to just chat with you. I feel like I could learn so much from you. Um, but you know it's so awesome for me because on my podcast, it's Beat the Often Path. I showcase unusual success stories. Emphasis on unusual. I'm all about the intersection of the arts and money because obviously without money, you can't be an artist for very long, right? Like you that's say, you right. put food on the table, you're going to be an Uber, Uber driver or whatever. Here in LA, that's, you know, 90% of all people doing stuff like that. Yep. So it's just very interesting that you found a way, you know, you come from this one background, which is vastly different than your partner's background, but the synergy of those two feel leads you to this combination where magic is starting to happen. That's right. You've got the data-driven people. You've got these actual comedians that you're bringing on your writers' retreats, and you're coming up with this cool stuff. So to me, it's just like, it's fascinating, man. <laughs> it's really cool. Like, so congratulations on you know on making it this far. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I I I really appreciate that. And we always feel super blessed when we're able to kind of take a starving comedian and and give them like a good source of income by letting them come into our world and teaching them yeah. how to write on ads and teaching them the principles of marketing and and sales and so even though they're out hustling and and you know they're they're out on the circuit doing their their open mic nights and all of that stuff um we can bring them into our world and kind of provide that you know a little bit of a monetary security so that they can keep chasing their dream very noble very noble thing to do. Um, to to kind of close things out here a little bit. Um, what what's the best piece of life advice you've ever received? Oh wow! I I've received a lot of good pieces. Um, the one that's popping into my head right now. Um, it was actually told to me by my my late grandfather. Uh, so he he passed away. This has been probably nine or ten years ago. Hmm. Um. But he was a farmer. Uh, you know, he was a potato farmer in, in Idaho. And so growing up, um, I had the opportunity, you know, during a few summers to go up and, and work for him. And he was a, he was a bit of a taskmaster. Um, you know, he was a, uh, he, he was a bit of a slave driver, for lack of a better term. term. Like, you know, he, he worked us hard. And, and, and in doing that, he kind of taught us the value of work. But I remember there was one time when, uh, when he kind of pulled me aside and he gave me this little lesson. And what he told me was that he said, if I always have, um, if I always in whatever job I work in, if I always look to the person who is above me, 
and focus on making them successful. He said, I'll never have to worry about being successful myself. Wow. And as, as a kid, I don't think I fully wrapped my head around the implications of that. Yep. But as my career began, I started applying that. Yep. And now looking back, like it's mind boggling. One, how rare it is that people think that way. And two, like how impactful it was to my career. Because at every step of the way, when I just looked at who is the person right above me and how do I make them wildly successful, I never had to think about my own career progression. I never had to worry about raises. I never had to worry about promotions. I never had to worry about any of that stuff. I just worried about making that person wildly successful. And then there was always somebody above who was reaching me, reaching back and pulling me along. And every time there was an opportunity for a promotion or a job change or whatever it was, it was always because somebody else was saying, yeah, Benton needs to, you know, yeah. ne- needs to be in this role. And, um, and so that one tiny little piece of advice that, that came from my grandpa ended up impacting my career in, in, in major ways. And I wish that that was a principle that more people understood. Well, that is a lovely sentiment to wrap things up. Um, again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for being on this show with me. Um, I do want to give the floor to you. Is there anything that you want to promote directly or any anything that you want people to know about where they can find your work or follow you? Uh, yeah, so th- there's there's kind of a range. If you just want to follow us and just kind of keep in touch and see what we're up to, um, I would say follow our podcast, From Poop to Gold. Um, if you're interested in learning how to do what we do and you know whether you're a comedian who wants to learn marketing or you're a marketer who wants to know our methodology, check out harmanbrothersuniversity.com. We teach it all there. It's the exact same curriculum that we use to train our own people with. Um, or if you're interested in working with us, you know, partnering on a project or something, just check out harmanbrothers.com um, and, and reach out to us. Um, be patient. We're, uh, we're sometimes not the most timely in, um, in, in getting back to everyone, but we do... You know, we do receive all of those. We we hear you and we get back as quick as we can. And, uh, you know, wherever there's an opportunity to help out, we'd love to jump in and help if we can. Well, that's wonderful. And with that, the podcast is officially over. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've been enjoying this show, please like, comment, share, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to me on YouTube. It would mean the world to me. Also, do you have an unusual success story or do you know someone who does? Well, please recommend them to me. They could be a future guest on this show. Maybe they've rolled the largest boulder down the mountains of Tibet or maybe they built the world's largest chicken farm in Madagascar. The point is, I don't know what I don't know, so I'm looking for inspiration and unusual success stories. So help me by being a part of this adventure. I'm looking to grow this podcast with you. Thanks again for listening.